You had questions, we attempted some answers. It's been about a year since we last did a Q&A, and since then we've broken 10,000 subscribers, been tossed off of YouTube, and witnessed the slow devolution of yet more of the American empire. We're also very fortunate to have an audience smart enough to know all of this, yet still have incisive and thought-provoking questions that challenge our assumptions and hopefully make the roundtable that is the myth of the 20th century part of a greater community of those that dare to tread where the system seeks to keep off limits. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time giving. The only Hello, and welcome to the Myth of the 20th Century. I'm Hank Oslo, and I'm joined here by two very special uh, recurring co-hosts, Adam Smith. Hey, everyone. And Hans Launder. Hi. And tonight we have a very special treat for you. It's the Myth of the 20th Century After Dark, where we don't do any prep. We just, uh, you know, sip on our beverage of choice and uh, answer questions. We talk discussions uh evolve edifices are constructed and deconstructed etc and uh you reap the consequences so i know uh, we posted on twitter um for a solicitation of questions we've culled uh, some of the best ones only the tastiest questions if we don't get to you uh then we're very sorry um, but before we do that i think that we had a a bitcoin donation um, that we wanted to mention yeah, just wanted to thank the Bitcoin wallet, starting with characters 1M6S. Thank you very much. Everyone here, thanks you. We appreciate it. So we can just kind of start uh, start in reverse order. I got a big sheaf of these that I've sort of semi, uh, semi-randomly selected here. So uh, Kiwi Carlisle asks on Twitter, uh, is the American empire and chosen power more vulnerable now because of its dependency and corporate dominance of social media to set narratives and will the enemy ever be able to cut the narrative off? I mean, isn't that the accusation regarding the Russian collusion story? And they're kind of admitting that there is a fatal flaw in the system that they've constructed. Like, oh, you can be manipulated this easily over Facebook. Like this is, you know, serious election violations. I don't know. That's how I, I've kind of read the whole situation is basically them silently admitting that uh, this is a very precarious system they've set up and it's very, very easy to manipulate the American population, social media, according to the powers that be. I, I would say it's, I'm trying to think historically how this compares to other times in the United States, at least, and the CIA embedding itself in the major media corporations has been going on for 50 plus years and probably longer uh, prior to the CIA in other uh, mechanisms. 
Uh, what's changed, though, is the technology. And there was, it, it would seem, a, a centralization for a time of the media with, uh, with kind of the mergers between the, the media companies and the broadcasting stations, basically kind of unifying their, their messaging. Then there was an explosion of cable, which was sort of an alternative that kind of broke the, the lock on that channel for information. And then there's just been an explosion again with the internet. And so I would say it's more difficult to control the narrative because of that. And you could argue that the reliance on the, uh, the corporate social media platforms in particular uh, has been a priority for the deep state and the establishment. And it seems like they've made a lot of headway into those areas. But their reliance upon it uh, is, I don't know if, it's, if we can even call it that because we're talking and we've obviously been kicked off of some of the major social media platforms because they don't like what we have to say. But I don't know if that means that they, they rely upon it for their control because it seems like they're kind of losing their grip and getting uh, more desperate. And so it, uh, it might be more difficult going forward for them. Let's, let's hope so at least. It was basically what the church, I mean, in the church hearings and some of the other uh, anti-Langley stuff that went on in the late 70s and early 80s, that all pretty much came out in public record that the CIA has uh, an inordinate kind of influence and almost bullyship with the American news media. I don't know if like the American news media has an upper hand in that relationship at all. They seem pretty... Um, reliant on the everyday whims of the CIA. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that the CIA feeds them stories and that those stories sell newspapers, they sell, you know, they, they attract attention, they sell ad business. That's how I think a good chunk of like, you know, whenever you see a story, anonymous officials are saying, whatever, this adds more fuel to the fire, allows them to make more sensationalist headlines, allows them to increase interest in any particular story if there's allegedly people confirming certain details of it i think that that's you know they they're very much uh existing at the whims of langley at a certain level and i'll put it this way i don't think that the media is a uh effective tool for pushing narratives long term I think that they're liquidating a lot of the, uh, you know, the social credibility that they've accumulated over the years. I think what they're far more focused on now is preventing opposition narratives from uh, arising and being uh, pushed. Their techniques for um, actually convincing people are kind of, you know, marginal at best. The whole RussiaGate thing was incoherent. Uh, it, it didn't lead to an actual belief. It codified a set of catechisms that you were supposed to claim to believe, but people didn't act in accordance with those beliefs. Nobody actually acted like they thought Donald Trump was literally a Russian state agent. Nobody right. took up arms. Nobody st started bombing post offices or whatever the heck you're supposed to do in that situation. And honestly, but it's very important to just say it. But the things that actually do lead to political change, like the emergence of uh, narratives that recognize that there's significant anti-white bias being pushed by the dominant power structure, not just bias, but that it's like a target of state destruction, 
that's something that every stop is pulled out to try to exclude from the conversation. And the effectiveness of that uh, kind of is up in the air. So, Honestly, I, I think that the, one of the interesting things about the whole Russiagate, whatever you want to call it, I mean, I think at this point, we call it a hoax. We can call it a sens like a sensationalism, at least. Um, if it had actually gotten real, I think that they would have been very, very worried if people really did believe what they were saying and really did start trying to blow shit up and act like the president was a foreign asset. That would have immediately come back on them and that would have kind of created a situation that would have been unpleasant for them. I don't I think that they just they wanted it to rise to the level of annoyance with the president. They didn't actually want to uh, do anything long term to him. That's how I've always kind of Gay Clint Eastwood asks, do you guys ever worry about your own safety for running the show? I'll, I'll just say no. Like, but like, I, I can't think of a, a podcaster that's been assassinated uh, as of yet. So probably not at the top of the list. Uh, I don't really worry. I mean, if, if I actually get whacked for being a, like a racist podcaster, uh, that's pretty incredible just <laughs> in of itself. And uh, I, I honestly, at some level, wouldn't mind being the first racist podcaster to be whacked for uh, being too mean to people online. I so, would mind, Hans, if you, if you don't. <laughs> uh, as for myself, um, I've definitely had thoughts about, you know, what might happen, but I've kind of made my peace with it. And it kind of came down to this. Look, I... I remember what it was like when I wasn't even paying attention to politics and yeah. Okay. You know, you get, you get sort of the normie rewards, the blue pill in the matrix, if you want to call it that. But once you've opened the door to the truth, you can't really go back. And it's not, it's not really like, you know, it'd be great if there was a third way where we could have the truth and have the benefits of what the society tries to reward you with for following its rules but that doesn't seem to be reconcilable. And so if I had to choose between the two of becoming a bug man again and just living as best as I can on my own feet, I'll, I'll continue to live on my own feet, even if the powers that be try to disgrace myself and my friends who also believe in this stuff. Because I think ultimately it comes down to this. The society is not worth living in once you know these things uh, the way they want you to live it and it, to me it's just there's no going back the uh clark oh dollar sign clark twain asks uh where should we relocate to consolidate power and rebuild out society i think there's an assumption kind of baked in there it, a lot of this is not about a physical location What's important is that you have people locally that you're able to coordinate with where you can defend your local corner of paradise. And just because you're in an area that has a reputation for being quote unquote right wing or whatever, that has pluses and minuses. If your plan is to uproot and liquidate whatever social capital you have in your current environment and move to you know, the back end of Mississippi or whatever because it's 
super based TM, that's not necessarily the best plan if you have a good thing going. And conversely, if you don't have a good thing going because of your personal circumstances, moving to somewhere else is not necessarily going to change that. Um, you know, having groups of like-minded people, um, they're, they're a lot of them all over the place. And they're definitely richer on the ground in some areas than in others. Um, but that also, you know, if you're really to the point where you're like, we have to go to the American redoubt, uh, then that also constitutes a target rich environment. In my view, as long as you get out of literal death traps, like, you know, Los Angeles, Washington, DC, New York city, as long as you're not, uh, in those very terrible places to live just objectively, um, Aside from that, the important thing is actually trying to coordinate with people locally, not where you happen to be geographically. I would agree with that. I would say you do want to weight things according to how you value them. And for different people, it's going to depend, obviously, on what opportunities are in front of them and whom, whom they know. And so to agree with Hank, I would say go to somewhere, if you can, where you have some semblance of a good network. And if you're in a place where all your friends are in one place and by leaving there, you would not be able to rebuild a sufficient, coherent social network in real life. Uh, if you had to choose somewhere else, that's probably not the best place, but you have to weigh that against the other things. So think of it like, you know, two or three factors at, at minimum. Okay. So your, your job opportunity, your employments, your, your way of, you know, feeding yourself, keeping yourself employed. Secondly, I would say, um, your social network, you might want to reverse those, but I would say, you know, if you can't, if you can't make a living, that's, that's a pretty tough choice to make. So I would put that first and then you can make friends after that. I think it's not that impossible. Uh, and then thirdly, I would rank, you know, the politics in the region. Okay. But if you can't do all three, you've got to prioritize and, and just get the one that gives you the best, um, total, total value out of all those, those categories. Uh, dysgenic dystopia asks, have you ever had any run-ins with any three-letter agencies? Do you think they surveil you? Um, I'm going to say, so surveillance means different things. There's three kinds of surveillance. There's the sort of passive stuff where every time you fill out a form, it goes in a database, and the database is collated and searchable and whatever, um, or, you know, international, uh, international internet traffic or communications with people that you know for a fact their communications are monitored because they're political dissidents or whatever that's the sort of passive ambient sort that i guess you know people worry about but they don't worry about per se there's targeted stuff which is designed not to be noticed, which is the extremely spooky stuff where, you know, all of your uh, emails are just being CC'd to uh, wherever. And then there's the stuff that's designed to be noticed, which is the actual, hey, we're going to Eastern Germany style, um, or just Eastern Germany, break into your apartment and rearrange the furniture to drive you crazy. Um, or just, you know, have a, a black van like following you half block uh, for the rest of the uh the month. I don't think um, any of us, and you guys can certainly speak for yourself, 
I don't feel like I've been targeted per se um, in more than the amount that you would uh, you would expect. Like certainly if you live in certain areas of the country, federal employees are what, like 10% of the U.S. workforce or something. So every once in a while you bump into one at a conference or whatever. But, you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, if you look at the sorts of people that these guys try to target it's often the literally retarded and schizophrenic um that they are able to easily meet their quota of plots to bust so aside from that i don't think that we're quite to the stage yet where it's random racist podcasters being targeted yeah i i agree i think we're on a list uh in an electronic sense but i don't think we have an agent or, or a team of people assigned to us we're, we're just not we're just not that um prominent i don't think and we're also honestly not that specifically critical of any individual power you know power people i, I would say you know we generally make statements but we're not out there on the street trying to picket and leaflet and agitate i think those are going to be much higher priority people that they're going to try to surveil or try to uh, entrap and uh, as Hank said typically the people that they end up entrapping are not looking uh, for people to do that to them and so they fall into the trap and most of us if not all of us are quite careful about what we do in real life and most of what we do in real life is somewhat compartmentalized from what we talk about online so I think it's I think we, we, we take a lot of precautions about, you know, doing things legally, especially. So I think we're, we're at, we're, we're on a, we're on a safe, we're on a safe bet at the moment, I think for uh, our personal surveillance and safety. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say I've ever had a, a run in with a, a spook of any kind or even just a, any kind of alphabet person. Um, if they surveil us, I think Adam, what I'm saying is probably correct. I think we are definitely on someone's list. That's probably why we got banned to begin with. We know that we've been cataloged under some form of whatever racism or whatever by the ADL. I think just by uh, kind of guilt by, by association because one of our shows showed up on PRS. Um, I don't think that we're probably actively surveilled. I think that we're probably all victims of mass surveillance methodology, you know, methodologies. I'm sure that there's all kinds of private mass surveillance and there's probably a great deal of um, graph analysis and node analysis that's gone on. It, they could probably pinpoint who we are pretty easily um, at this point, but I don't think anyone is actually using that in a targeted way against us. We're just, we're small fish. Um, we don't, you know, we don't do anything we don't really do much in the real world with any of this stuff. We have, we all lead pretty normal lives. We all you know, pay our taxes, do normal things, don't get in trouble, don't have records of the law. So I don't really think that we're targets for anyone right now. Hopefully not. Esoteric Trad asks, uh, this will be a fun one. Uh, which major ethic, ethnic gangs are more likely to become more powerful in 10 years? Uh, the, so the, the most prominent one outside of the very obvious Hispanic gangs will be the Chinese. Yeah, um, I was thinking Chinese too. 
And yeah. uh, on, honestly, a couple other Southeast Asian groups are going to become in certain regions uh, in, in Southern California. And yeah, Vietnamese are pretty good. Yeah, I, I was about to say Vietnamese, um, particularly in Southern California, are pretty vicious um, and have been growing. Armenians uh, have been a growing ethnic bloc in this mm-hmm. country for a while, mostly based out of SoCal. Uh, they do have, I know that they do have connections in um, the rest of the West Coast. They have connections all all to the Central Valley and uh, Southern Californian Valleys, uh, uh, obviously California, some in New York. Um, I think on some level, we'll probably eventually see somewhat of a resurgence of, if you want to call it the Russian mafia, that's kind of a dubious term, but that'll likely become at least if not if not nominally a more of an issue it'll be pointed out much more um just because they're kind of running out of things to adequately blame on russians so they'll eventually dredge up the remnants of the bratstva uh, probably all over again you know speaking of chinese uh ethnic uh ethnic gangs or mafias this is, I point to this story all the time because it's hilarious, uh, from, uh, 2016 in the, uh, the Sacramento Bee, frustrated with Sacramento leaders, armed citizen patrols respond to robberies of Asians. And the news article goes on to describe how basically the Sacramento Asian community, uh, quote unquote, the Chinese have, uh, been getting robbed by the blacks too much. So they formed a no-shit armed militia uh, that just open carries in the streets of Sacramento and escorts uh, Asians uh, from place to place and responds to attacks and all the other sort of wholesome stuff you want from your uh, your personal ethnic militia, all of which is completely illegal under California state law and uh, Sacramento municipal ordinances, uh, which does not seem to be, oddly enough, deterring them. So there's like every community forms these sorts of uh, ethnic based organizations, either explicitly or tacitly. And as the central power of the American state deteriorates, you're just going to see a lot more centrifugal forces and, you know, not to get kind of whatever the inverse is of civic nationalists, like civic disintegrationalists, but you're going to see a lot of small towns that are very homogeneous and uh, still very white out in the middle of nowhere do basically the same sort of thing where if you're just some guy rolling through, you better maybe have a good reason to be there. The same way that if you walk through the wrong part of Chicago, somebody's going to walk up in a hoodie and be like, hey, man, who you know? Where are well, you at? You know, I, I can't really pin this on a particular ethnicity other than just calling it, unfortunately, a, a general grouping of, of white people in America. But I do know from personal interactions with people that know people uh, that are getting into drugs a lot. And obviously the areas that have been hardest hit have been Appalachia and the Midwest, but it's it's in a lot of quote-unquote good areas that I'm, I'm surprised to actually be hearing stories about that. And so when economies take a downturn, when there's political instability, drugs are typically the economic fuel for a lot of gangsterism. And unfortunately, a lot of the ethnicities that are associated with uh, methamphetamine 
and cocaine perhaps, uh, but especially meth, it seems, are from coming from, from whites. And they don't seem to be organized per se into gangs, but they could, they could cohere into larger groupings. And they're probably, honestly, at the moment, they're, they're somewhat subordinate to cartel activity, which is probably at a higher level of the food chain. But there, there might be some, some growth in that going forward if things cont- uh, deteriorate into sort of a, a civil disillusion state. One of the things that we, we don't really see here that uh, the Europeans see a lot are African gangs. Um, there's been a huge swath of growth in uh, Nigerian and Gambian and Ugandan uh, gangs across Europe um, for very obvious reasons at this point. But part of that just has to do with the fact of proximity. Um, but they get into the same kind of industries that, you know, most ethnic gangs do in the modern day, which are human trafficking, drugs, weapons trade, um, just, just general political corruption. And I think that there might, you know, in the U.S., the, the most prominent sort of African group would be predisposed to that are Somalis at this point. Um, we do have a, a growing... Small gangs are a thing. Yeah, but they're not, they're not like a, a prominent mafia or kind of criminal syndicate at this point, like Armenians and various Wiener gangs and, and Chinese, and obviously Russians are very organized and hierarchical organizations with, with real interests, hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. in the line, uh, real connections, political connections. Somalis you know, have been kind of a not quite there yet. There are sort of dumb Somali gangs in Minneapolis, in Milwaukee and other parts of Seattle. Um, but to the extent which they're sort of a, a syndicate, I don't, I don't really think that they are yet, or I don't know. They, they seem to lack a lot of sophistication. I was thinking of the Somalis too, but I, I just don't know if they qualify as organized. I mean, just let's just be honest. Yeah. I mean, well, they, they'll it, it, stand on the street corner and harass people. And if you look at what Somali, uh, the country they come from, uh, does for a living, it's basically they go out on these like fiberglass boats with uh, shitty two-stroke motors on the back, and then they try to uh, throw hooks over the sides of uh, container ships, uh, and then they they climb up with uh, AK-47s and try to capture the captain and, and ransom them. They're like that's like their economy. I mean, they they don't know how to build anything. They don't know how to really plan, you know, very strategically. The whole country is a mess, and so I would not expect their exported people, their diaspora, to be able to really get into anything too sophisticated. Uh, it's it's basically just going to be petty theft and um, thuggery. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, there there is there is that potentiality there, but um, the, the most obvious ones would be Chinese and um, various Hispanic organizations that'll just grow in power, especially as the Southwest becomes totally Hispanic. Um, they'll have whole zones where there's freedom of opposition that they can basically uh, hide from law enforcement if they have an opportunity, become the local be able to launch bases of operations, national drug trades domestically without having to worry about getting product from over the border. Um, most of the gangs, most of the powerful organizations in the United States at this time, I think, are pretty much just drug-related, maybe with the exception of Armenians. And I think that's because Armenians just have a large population, 
and a significant amount of money um, that they've acquired through various means. So that money is going to go somewhere. Um, they've taken over. I mean, there's, you know, there's obviously the city of Glendale in Southern California, which is at this point just an Armenian city. Um, it's run by Armenians. The day-to-day life is basically dictated by Armenians. That that kind of base of operations, especially in a metropolitan area like Greater Los Angeles, gives them a lot of power. So you'll start seeing them get in trouble, or get busted for things. But as, uh, as the frequency of them getting busted and showing up to the news grows, that'll mean that they're actually gaining power. That there's, you know, for every one bust, there's probably an operation don't get busted uh, at a certain level, especially when you know the FBI and others take an active interest in them. That means the problem has gotten out of hand. Let's uh, let's take one from the myth account. Hans, do you have that uh, pulled up? I don't. Adam, you want to? Yeah, yeah, I have it. So I can pull it up right now. I just I don't have it in front. Of I'm me. I'm not actually sure how Twitter uh, algorithmically sorts these, but uh, I'll just let Twitter decide uh, what the uh, order in which we ask this is. And there'll be no bias from us. So at the top, it says, uh, this is coming from Super Basic News at Super Basic News. Do you think all of Western USA will become Asian? Or should Hong Kong be used as a tool to divide China and do something dot, dot, dot? Those are two separate questions. So the first one is, do you think all Western USA will become Asian? I don't think all of it, but I think the urban centers uh, in California... Seattle and possibly Portland are becoming hubs of their activity. I don't think they're going to be sending the numbers that the Hispanics are sending uh, in any sort of coherent way. Because if you if you know anything about the Chinese and the Vietnamese, the Japanese and the Koreans, they don't really like each other, and so and that's some very old standing stuff. And there seems to be more coherence in the Hispanic community from Mexicans to Central Americans. But um, they, uh, they are bringing a lot of money. They're buying a lot of real estate. And there is some activity uh, in the criminal world, obviously in the business world, in the legitimate world, there's a ton of it. Uh, so I think in the city centers of San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, uh, and maybe Portland, I think there will be increases. But these are people that already made their money coming over and trying to stash their money overseas it's not necessarily people coming over to seek their fortune like you see in the uh chinese colonialism in africa or just the traditional quote-unquote overseas chinese in other parts of uh, asia so there's sort of a uh, headroom on it um i think you know once you have kind of multi-generational uh type arrangements um that's you know, another thing, and you are having enough where you're starting to see second and third generation be fairly large and politically significant, especially in places like San Francisco. Um, There's a vulnerability that comes from just owning a bunch of physical property. And that's one of the reasons why the U.S. is very attractive is because we do have stable, relatively speaking, property rights and a well-functioning legal system, and we don't tend to just expropriate people. However, um, I'm guessing that 
the confidence that the rest of the world has in the U.S.'s ability to continue those things is going to significantly diminish. I think we're like a decade tops from someplace like Chicago basically going full uh, Eastern uh, Europe style exit visas required. Uh, pay your uh, pay back the city for all those services that you consumed, comrade, before you're allowed to leave the state. And I don't think that uh, California will be too far behind them uh, once the next recession hits. So I think it's it's obviously a problem. I don't see it as a problem that doesn't have a bound on it, which doesn't mean that it won't uh, cause a lot of damage um, as it kind of evolves towards whatever the equilibrium ends up being. Second question is, should Hong Kong be used as a tool to divide China and do something dot, dot, dot? I mean, by used by, yes. by who is what I would ask sort of in response to that. But Hank, uh, why don't you explain why you think it should happen? They, uh, you should, uh, should start airdropping uh, you know, people to stir up some trouble there. No, it's like, so I have no love for the American empire. I think we should get out of Europe uh, and let them chart their own way to the extent possible. I think that most of our quote-unquote security commitments are obviously negative sum at this point and don't even benefit the U.S. all that much. That doesn't mean that I want to see a aggressive uh, foreign power with a long track record of attempting to loot the United States uh, gain indefinitely at America's expense. So I think that in order for a peaceful equilibrium to be reached, as the U.S. Uh, is obviously weakening, I don't think that it's a good idea for China to grow unbounded in strength. So honestly, the more problems that can highlight some of their internal divisions, and maybe you know to put on my neoliberal hat for a while, maybe strengthen their underlying ability to deal with those internal divisions in a productive way. Uh, like a little bit of federalism wouldn't be the worst thing in Hong Kong. I don't actually know why they're so insistent on uh, this uh, extradition package. Like Hong Kong has a fully functioning judicial system to begin with. Now it's just a, a face contest, as they say. But it seemed to have been completely unnecessary. So, yeah, it's it's like let them fight. I I don't care who wins. I only hope for negative sum in that particular context. I mean, if I'm being honest, I I instinctually agree with Hank just because China has had it out for the United States explicitly. If you read any of their documents in Chinese and if you go on their forums where just the private citizenry is talking about what they plan to do to the United States and how they're carving carving up chunks of it, as we just talked about in the previous question, China is no friend of the United States. And so I do not feel like we, we owe that country uh, any of our energy and money and time to stabilize uh, their power structure. Uh, they are definitely a rival and they're a much, much bigger rival than Russia. Russia is not necessarily a friend, but they are in many ways an opportunity. Uh, China has basically been stealing our technology. They have been hollowing out our economy to the benefit of the owners of the businesses in this country that moved all the factories there. 
but to no benefit to the middle class. And so it's, um, it's a country that is explicitly had it out for us. And, you know, it's, it's a rival. So I, I'll, I'll agree with Hank. So would y'all do a, uh, this is Dabney Reborn. Would y'all do a podcast on the Southern Agrarians, the Vanderbilt 12? So I didn't actually know what that was uh, until about a couple hours ago. Looked up, uh, and that actually sounds fairly interesting. Um, initially, I, I assumed it had more to do with just the Vanderbilt family, although it seems like it, it just has to do with the institution, Vanderbilt University. Um, but this this appears to be uh, sort of a southern reactionary movement uh, of predominantly composed of I think, poets and, and historians and writers who are trying to create a new vision of the South in the 20s and 30s. Uh, you know, the South had been lingering and, and sort of uh, becoming more and more irrelevant in a lot of ways uh, after Reconstruction. It wasn't really until a post-war economy when you had um, the Sun Belt Revolution and the South really took off from an industrial standpoint and sort of a, a reemergence of the South uh, on the, the cultural stage of the country. But uh, this seems to have been a pretty important movement that maybe laid the groundwork for that. So, uh, yeah, I would be interested in doing this or at least doing this as, uh, as a part of a larger show on maybe just uh, the South in the 20th century, how it just kind of grown up after the end of the Civil War and uh, Reconstruction and the end of the Progressive so the South is... Like I said, fairly irrelevant for that era. And that was really the era in which uh, New England took its center stage on the national cultural front for uh, for a long time. Another one that uh, I think someone asked, uh, "Cheeky business, how do we combat the blatant left wing bias on mainstream social media? Do you think alternative <laughs> platforms like BitChute can survive?" I dislike social media, but think it is important to be present to disrupt the mainstream narrative and keep up the great work, guys. Uh, I'll take, I'll go first on this. Um, how do you combat the blatant left-wing bias on mainstream social media? You can, and that has a large chunk to do with just the kind of people that work at these companies. Um, I know some of the people that work at these companies. We are all familiar with the kind of people that work at these companies. We know the kind of person that goes into it. All of us have you know, worked, done stuff in tech, done stuff in engineering. We, it's been obvious. I, we can, all of us can tell you that you're never going to solve this problem just by virtue of the fact that the kind of people that work there, run these companies, work at VC firms that actually finance new social media companies uh, have no interest in giving guys like you or guys like us uh, any say. They want nothing to do with us. They don't want us to talk. They just want us to consume their products, if that. Um, but most importantly, they want us to shut up uh, and not have any sort of gripes with uh, what they're doing. Do you, do you think alternative platforms like BitChute can survive? Uh, potentially. Which BitChute has some architectural problems, I would say. I don't really understand why they're distributing uh, content the way they are. Um, they're they're not like that. So the BitTorrent is a little bit of a misnomer. Yeah, they, they have every, they have direct streaming. Yeah, like theoretically they have the Magnet Link, um, but I have never been able to get one of their Magnet Links actually seeding. And I mean, mostly I'm looking at low volume stuff, but 
the fat tail is supposed to be the uh, the thing of interest there. So, I mean, so I'll answer the question based on what Hank is just saying now. And, and look, part of it has to do with you have to choose the right technology, and the other half of it has to do with actually gaining traction. So, when YouTube first became the predominant or first came on the scene, I don't think a lot of people remember or maybe don't uh, recollect as clearly that there were several other platforms that you know, had basically the same fun similar functionality YouTube. Um, one in particular was Daily Motion. Um, Daily Motion has basically become irrelevant. I think it's around, but it doesn't do much. Um, but there was a there was a period in time when Google Video, Daily Motion, and a couple other um, sites, a couple other companies had very real competition. Um, but people flock to YouTube over time for a variety of reasons. Um, and the simple fact of there's so many people there, there's so much content there of all kinds, makes it impossible for anyone to switch to a new platform. And people have been trying to switch to a platform for at least four or five years now. There was Minds.com, which kind of uh, face, face planted very quickly. Um, BitChute has some potential, but again, some weird technical issues. And I think uh, BitChute is... Like video in particular, because there's often a heavy recency bias, so it's relatively easy to switch to get a certain baseline number of eyeballs if that's where you go for new content. Like YouTube has a huge long tail of random stuff, but you also have to look at where places are actually making money. So I can't see these numbers, but my guess is that the things that make money on YouTube are YouTube kids, makeup tutorials, and car reviews. And that's just about yeah, like 90% of their the, operating product. The recommended or featured content. So let's say you go to YouTube and you um, you go on a, like a machine that doesn't have a lot of browsing history or what have you. Um, you don't sign in to your existing Google, or Google account syncs with your YouTube uh, views and your preferences. Just going to take a look at what it immediately recommends. Um, and it's mostly just sort of uh, aftermarket corporate product advertising. It is unboxing. It is reviewing. It is using. It is talking about. Um, it is mostly, I think, increasingly concerned with just post-marketing um, endeavors for, for corporate products. Which is not a bad thing. Uh, yeah, I, don't I love watching three-hour videos of some guy with a weird accent shaving away metal from an object to make a slightly different object. Yeah, that's but that like it's it's impossible that that's a net moneymaker for them. So I mean, Bitshoot, if they can acquire basically, if they become the go-to source for news and analysis and political content. That's a niche, and it remains to be seen whether that's a profitable niche. But, I mean, I honestly, for things that give you access to decent amounts of content, I don't mind paying five bucks a month or whatever. And that would completely dwarf YouTube's average per user per video uh, profit numbers. Right. And I think that, you know, outside of video platforms, in terms of just raw social media, um, I don't really know if we really even want an alternative 
Uh, I think that it is important to be on a platform where you can, again, like as you said, talking to this uh, you business fellow, you know, get your message out there and be present. Um, but uh, on some level, I think it, it's probably just best to find ways of distributing your content through a website you own. You know, maybe using existing social media to try and advertise as much as possible and get the word out there and then build it through word of mouth, build it through good content. Um, that's honestly how most blogs and most sites uh, become profitable or at least become well known on their own anyways. Um, so I think that, that that's probably the best way forward is maybe shifting back away from using social media and just let's get our content on a website let's record our content let's make a video let's keep it somewhere off of one of these platforms where it can be stable or we can be reviewed multiple times or people build on it um that is probably the best or one of the better um forms of you know, getting your content out there and building sort of an opportunity um other than that i i really don't think that we should people should be spending too much time worrying about the social media stuff because at some level two things might there's two things that could happen either we all get purged and we're all sort of unable to really utilize it anymore and then it doesn't matter any investments we attempt to make and the existing stuff won't matter and have a hard time getting anything new off the ground or they'll allow us to kind of continue to use their products sparingly uh, which is i think what they've pretty much done and keep people complacent and nothing is really ever done in the long-term sense. All right. Let me, uh, let me read one of the questions. This is from at smug Verity. Uh, basically he's asking about how do you escape neat, neatism? Uh, he's playing a lot of video games. He wants to know, should I learn to code, go to carpentry school, etc. cetera. <laughs> um, I would say this, what do you want in life okay, and work backwards from there? Whom do you admire? All right. Whoever it is, whatever they do, how do you do that? Can you achieve that? And if you really admire people who play video games in their bedroom all day, well, I think you probably need better role models. I'm not saying I've never played a video game or I you know, disrespect people who play video games, but this guy's playing a lot of hours, he's saying in the question. And I think if you were to go to a woman and or a wife and try to explain that to her there'd be a problem and she'd probably be right and so think in terms of like where do you want to be as a person in five years what is that person doing on a daily and they're probably not playing world of warcraft so basically think of it that way think forward I, I, think backwards i can give some clarity on this too uh i so i played world of warcraft for a while i played when um, classic was actually classic when I first i was i played all the way through wrath um, and quit not long after completing ICC and all that stuff. Um, I rated as a, a demo lock for a long time, and it's it's fun. It's it. I honestly, I get the appeal. I got. I really liked it when I was a teenager because um, you know I didn't really have a lot else going on. Just had school, a couple friends, and not much else really going on for me. So I played a lot, but uh, I don't look back on it too fondly. Um, I did, there were some fun times and it did teach me some important lessons, I think, but at the end of the day, you, know, you have very limited time. I know it doesn't seem like it, especially if you're young, but you have very limited time to build a skill set, build a life, you know, make connections, 
do things that are probably better for your long-term well-being than you actually think. And that When that time runs out, there's going to be a tremendous amount of stress that sets in because you're going to be trying, you're going to realize that you should have done all these things and you're going to be stressing about the fact you're going to be stressing about the fact that you need to do all of those things you should have done already and new life priorities is going to come up. Now, not only do you have enough time to do that. Yes. Very, very difficult. Um, you know, I, you're going to want to meet a girl, but you haven't laid any of the foundations for that. You don't have like decent wardrobe. You don't, you know, have some good social cues. You don't have a little bit of experience with them. So you're going to be worried about the fact that okay, now I really want to get married because I'm getting older, but I haven't been on a date very often. No basics of this yet. Um, and there is an element of meeting women, you know, if one is fun and if she, she works for you, that's great. It'll, it'll just kind of fall together, but you have to at least know what you're doing. Just because you guys could connect very well if you fuck it up early on because you haven't spent any time trying to be in a relationship or figure out how women work um you know it doesn't matter how great you could have been for each other you're really going to regret the fact that you screwed up early on just because you didn't know what to do. Yeah, i was setting up positive feedback loops right. for yourself is yeah. really so important that's the reason why things like world of warcraft work is because you get immediate randomized positive feedback from doing stuff and you need to figure out, depending on what your macro level goals are, you need to structure it so that it's not just a slog, but that you're doing concrete intermediate tasks that are, are in some sense, their own reward, or at least give you some sort of indication that you're actually making progress, that you can do some underlying thing better than you could before. Like things like before and after pictures, I mean, honestly, if you want to go down the rabbit hole, cognitive behavioral therapy is something that works for people. That's uh, that's something that exists in a lot of different forms. Don't just read the wiki article on it. But you you have to set your life up so that you're not fighting yourself. And, I, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't play games. Uh, in gaming, I honestly think is a really great stress relief at the end of the day. Especially if you if you can tell yourself, okay, I put the work in, you know, so today I not only went to work, I spent an hour and a half myself something new or reading something or working out or I went on a date. And at the end of it, okay, you know what, I want to sit down, I want to play an hour of WoW. You know, if, you're, if you've already level capped, okay, I go on to trade, do a couple of dungeon runs, go get a new piece of gear and then call tonight. But don't waste some of your best years, and I know it seems cliche, but I'm not. I can't be that much older than you. Uh, don't waste some of. Don't waste some of your best years on on WoW or on any video game, but WoW in particular. Yeah, let, let me uh, let me underline what Hans just said. I'm Hank, and I are older than Hans, and what he's saying is absolutely correct. And you really don't realize it as much until you are older that you really don't have all this time and if you screw around in your 20s like a lot of us did and you get into your 30s you're going to find out that there's a lot fewer people out there for you or opportunities out there for you if you haven't laid that groundwork 
to get to where you want to be. And every day, frankly, it, at that point, you know, you have to ask yourself, am I contributing to my goal? Am I working on it? And if you're not, you really are falling behind a lot of people. And so it's, it's much easier to do it earlier rather than later. Uh, yep. next, next quick question. And this is more for Nick. He's not on the call, but he's basically asking, you know, do we, uh, do we have any sort of interest in getting to kind of like the art of second world war Germany basically? And I, I think he probably should, uh, as one Twitter response said, probably do his own show on that. Uh, I think that's his, definitely his wheelhouse. Um, it's is... really difficult to talk about art on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. I think that we could do shows on art, on artistic movements in the 20th century that would be interesting, but it would be strictly from a political context or just sort of how does how did the art world work during this phase? Not so much reviewing the art itself, but more why was this particular style of art developed? Who was funding it? Or who was basically, you know, we could do a holistic show on how has the market for art developed over the last hundred years? Like that would be that would be much more interesting. Or what has art thievery just you know actually stealing art, which is actually really interesting that uh, it still goes on even to this day, uh, especially in Europe. There's still you know diamond heists and art heists. It's kind of cool. Um, why have those continued? What have what have those? Uh, I think would be much more again much more interesting than talking about a piece of art, talking about a movement from just a purely artistic standpoint. Part of that for me is I'm not a very artistic guy. Um, so I, I don't know how much I truly appreciate it. On, I can fill us, you know, talk about it for hours on end. But I could talk about art heists for hours on end, why they've worked and who exactly has been doing these art heists. All right, next question. This is from Clark Fletcher 7. Can you give some behind-the-scenes details of how an episode is prepared? And a whole bunch of people were curious about that. So, interesting question. Um, oh. I'll, I can talk about this a little bit. So, I, I think that it's much more casual than I think uh, maybe other shows or most people expect. Uh, sometimes we'll just throw, it, throw ideas out to each other. Say, you know, I'm interested in doing this. Um, I, I'm going to look into it. I'll buy a book or I'll find some papers, I'll read some articles just to kind of get started and see if it's worth it. Um, we typically have an ongoing chat, so we're always kind of in communication with each other about different topics, you know. And there's a lot of faith often invested in the person who proposed the topic to lead the show or the two people who proposed the topic to lead the show. And then everyone else just sort of pitches in and maybe asks some sort of countervailing questions or tries to bring up counterarguments or something like that. Um, or if we have a guest, you know, we'll discuss someone who's running point on that guest with the show. We'll typically kind of lay out the framework of what it's going to be. And then if they need someone to specifically research something in particular because they don't have time, that person will do it. Um, or we'll just kind of show up and help out and kind of ask questions that, you know, maybe from the audience's standpoint for clarification. Uh, and then after the show is done, we typically... Uh, you know, Adam does a lot of the post-production work. Sometimes the rest of us will help out with that, either with recordings or with pictures or with sourcing. Um, but I think a lot of the post-production work is done mostly by Adam at this point. Um, that's worked pretty well. It's generally how a 
generally how a show comes together. Yeah, and as Hans said, there is faith placed in the person who is the... When we, we originally did this, it was basically around books, and so we call it like a reader of a particular book, but now it's just basically topic-based, and so wherever you can find sources. And I've never been disappointed. I, I've actually... Uh, wondered uh when we first started if people could actually live up to the responsibility and i've never actually been uh caught off guard by that and i think everybody's done a great job uh, making sure that they're prepared and then also we uh we hopefully are, are there to kind of just kind of shoot ideas off each other the whole idea behind this is basically we could all do our own reading do our own thinking but without having some semblance of feedback from people who are interested in this topic and who are serious about it, it really is difficult to clarify some of the, the rougher areas of your thinking and your knowledge base. And so just having the roundtable discussion is really what makes this whole thing invaluable to us and hopefully to you as well. And I think that's why the formulas worked is that we all get value out of it. And we are genuinely interested in these topics and we are genuinely asking questions and searching for the truth and we do appreciate that uh, other people find value in this and so we'll keep it up as long as people do there's a there's a question here from his at is wonderful jay why did you have the the monikers you first used in the show where did they come from why did they change will hans get kicked out of the library <laughs> And you're confusing you with Nick now. <laughs> you're confusing me with Nick, man. Uh, I I don't. I do go to the library uh, like once a week, but I I don't actually record the show there. Um, why did you have the monikers you first used in the show? I can speak for myself. Um, basically, I, I chose. Uh, this goes into the story of how I even got on this show, but I basically I chose a moniker just called Sarlander. So S double A R then Lander. Uh, that that's basically German someone from uh, the Saarland or, or the Saar, which is a region of Germany near France. Um, so I basically amended that when I kind of on the show. Uh, we go with more of like a you know real first name last name. So I just augmented the first part of that to a German name Hans and the rest of. Uh, where did they come from? Just kind of explain that. Why did they change? I don't think anybody changed our names. No, we, we changed it when we went to, went to Social Matter. We started uh, doing this on our own for the first 10 episodes, and then we got onto Social Matter, and we were suggested, right. which we agree with, actually, in retrospect, to just pick some regular names. So uh, Hank was uh, Mr. Anderson. Uh, Alex was... <laughs> God, if I remember at this point, I don't remember. Um, and then I was Endgame. Nick changed his like three times, so who knows? But uh, <laughs> that's Nick. I probably shouldn't uh, tell this to our audience, but that's actually my real name. <laughs> yeah, well, the uh, the jig is up. There it is. Yeah, uh, Hank actually looks like Keanu Reeves, but not like half Asian. I should just imagine Hank. Is a non half Asian Keanu Reeves right. in the Matrix from 2000, like the handsome version of Keanu Reeves. Now, now he looks like uh, like some guy who just wandered off the step to a bar fight. But back then, well, now I look like John Wick three uh, Keanu. <laughs> it's been a rough few years. 
Yeah, he's got the scars on his face and like the strung out hair. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, the reason I picked mine was I I'm a huge was a huge I don't watch it really anymore, but when it was on the air I, I watched every single X Files episode I can get my hands on and uh, I did end up getting the the box set of DVDs when DVDs are still a thing. And one of the episodes was called Endgame, and it was basically about the plan for the uh, the colonizers of the world uh, to basically finish, do their finishing move on the human race. And so it was a very profound episode you know, embedded with a lot of sort of heavy religiosity and, and spiritual meaning. And, and it was kind of a, a linchpin to the whole story. And I... I love the, uh, the the series, and it's obviously a very conspiratorial series. And so, since we talk a lot about uh, the underworld and the and the dark the dark aspects of our government, our society, I thought it was a very fitting name. Um, and I also do like to think long term. So that was that was my reasoning. Uh, I don't know if Hank had any more reasoning other than he probably likes Keanu Reeves or something. Well, that that's my real name. <laughs> I keep forgetting. I got a, I got one, another one right here. Would you consider an episode? This is from Dogmar Schmidt. E. Schmidt. This guy's been a fan for a while. I think. Um, shout out to him. But would you consider an episode on the breakup of multi-ethnic empires? The Habsburg come to mind, as well as the Ottomans, who Borzoi has tweeted about. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean the Habsburgs are probably the most interesting. The Ottomans. Um, there's a lot of internal Turkish politics stuff that I don't really know if there's been any great books translated into English on it. Uh, I, from what I can understand, um, there there was an ethnic angle to a large extent inside of the Ottoman Empire, but the Ottoman Empire breakup was facilitated by outward or outside forces so much that it's hard to talk about it just as, okay, here's a bunch of ethnicities and they're breaking up. Um, and you also remember that towards the end of the Ottoman Empire, I believe a lot of the ethnicities had basically been killed off or deported. So most of what remained of the kind of fledgling Ottoman territory was pretty thoroughly Turkish. Um, most of the ethnicities that they have now in Turkey did not have large populations. Then Kurds, who were a very, very minor part of the Turkish state at the time. Um, so I, I think that the Habsburgs are probably more interesting. You know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire is sort of the classic and model test case for what happens when ethics actually start competing for power. Um, I've said this before, but had World War One not happened the way it did, um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire would have like voted on its own because uh, Czechs were basically becoming too large in their population; they were becoming too rich. Um, and there were there were rumblings in the Czech political scene inside the Austro-Hungarian Empire for a tripartite monarch, you know, pushing the state for a third monarchical crown, which would be a Czech crown alongside, uh, obviously, an Austrian-German one and uh, and a Hungarian one, and that would have created a political crisis that would have destroyed uh, destroyed the state entirely. So it's interesting that you know there that people still talk about it, uh, talk about the Habsburgs even though. A lot of ways, the average person probably doesn't remember them from high school or uh, doesn't even think about them. But that is one of the better um, test cases for what happens when you have way too many people crammed together. Um, and honestly, the fall of the Soviet Union, 
post-Soviet, you know, post-Soviet Russia nearly had multiple ethnic breakaways. Um, they basically had to pay people off not to leave. Um, you don't really hear about it as much because it didn't go down in flames the way that a lot of the ones in the Caucasus did. But there were, you know, huge swaths of uh, territory, the East and even in the Urals, that were actively campaigning for independent statehood had to be bought off by uh, by the kind of nearly broke Russian state to uh, to not completely collapse uh, what remained of traditional Russian empire. I just wanted to jump back to a previous question real quick before we get too far into the show. Uh, Morgoth, who has a very good YouTube channel, and hopefully he's moving to BitChute as well, uh, published on his website a very good list of dissident channels that have been thrown off of YouTube and with their equivalent BitChute channel if they do have one. So I'm going to put a link to that. Uh, I do support the efforts of BitChute, obviously. We all do. We all hope they make it. And some of that is believing that they will make it and us participating in that platform may not guarantee it, but it will help. So I want to emphasize that every little bit we do does contribute to a good cause. So I'm going to put a link to that. And there's a very long list here that should be helpful for people who are missing some of the previous content that was on YouTube. You think you want to tackle one from your, uh, from your yeah, let's, uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, the, <laughs> Uncle Sam Hyde uh, requests, what are your thoughts on the leadership principle? I think I know that by a different name versus decentralized resistance. Is the dissident right organized, quote unquote, enough? Um, No, but I think that's partially by design at this point. I don't know if being thoroughly organized would be good for a lot of us. I I agree. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the... uh, yeah. So organization is a double-edged sword. Um, there's in the study of uh, insurgent networks, which, uh, you know, although we are nonviolent and purely devoted towards uh, legal electoral politics, is essentially what you are when you're attempting to you know, exert political influence while maintaining uh, an amount of uh, crypsis around your uh, membership organization, etc. There's basically two designs, um, and uh, uh, Uncle Sam uh, mentioned both of them. You have very distributed cellular networks, the advantage of those being that they're very difficult to roll up, but they also have extreme difficulty doing large-scale actions. And you have uh, very uh, well-organized, centralized ones that are easy to infiltrate and roll up, but uh, are actually able to accomplish things, assuming that that doesn't happen. You also have fractal ones where that's true on some levels and not on others, partnership organizations where you have some some sub-components that are very um, hierarchical because everybody knows each other and some that are very distributed. These, these are all trade-offs that are very contextual. Um, I would say that small organization is better than bad organization. Uh, if you're doing the wrong things then that's worse than doing nothing. Um, And 
frankly, effective organizations that aren't purely mercenary in character uh, depend on personal relationships, not ideological affiliation. Even inside of extremely ideological uh, organizations like various political parties, the effective factions in there are people that have some extrinsic connection with each other. The same goes with local uh, political uh, political organizations like um, city councils and things. So this is a roundabout way of saying that uh, if somebody makes a good point, that is a good reason for believing in that thing. But in terms of who do you trust and coordinate with, it should probably be somebody that you know, trust and coordinate with and not just a voice somewhere in the ether. I think organization follows good dynamics, good people, good, good dynamics between them and activities that are actually generative and positive for the members of that group. And from there, the organization gets larger and it can then afford to get more structured and invest in things like an army, navy, infrastructure, all the things that a country is built upon. The problem at its core, though, is not the fact that we don't have organization. That's a symptom of the fact that we're weak and the fact that we don't have the ability to stand our own feet, work together, and separate ourselves from a very parasitical and corrupt system that is enslaving us to not be too dramatic. But that, to me, is what the root problem is. If we didn't need to have to get up every morning and go to jobs that we hate on a piece of infrastructure that is overcrowded with traffic that taxes our health and then we get taxed by the government and given to wars that don't benefit us and immigrants that don't like us if we didn't have to deal with that then we could actually have our own nation our own people but we need to be able to do that first before we can organize around whatever we build that is self-sustaining and independent of the system that is trying to crush us. That is, it's like putting the cart before the horse. If we, if we have a great looking cart, right, that's organized and has all the sort of compartments for all the different people that are supposed to be staffing this bureaucracy that is supposed to serve us, the people, but we don't have a horse, then we're not going anywhere. So we have to get the horses moving in the right direction in a, in a dynamic way that attracts other horses. And then we can really have a, have a good moving system to use some crude analogies. But ultimately, organizations grow out of healthy systems. And we don't have that. We're, we're dysfunctional, broken people. And we have to get right with ourselves before we can move forward. I do have a, uh, an interesting question here from Soylent Connoisseur. <laughs> You guys have some great names. Um, does Myth20C have a long-term plan for development? Or is content made sporadically without a long-term purpose? There is a plan. What is it? Thanks for the great content. Um, hmm. The long-term long plan is to keep making shows as regularly as possible. Uh, I think that in the wider sense, the long-term plan does involve the American Sun, which is... Um, basically our brainchild along with Ryan Landry. Um, you know, we were editors there. We've recruited a lot of the people that have gone on to write for us there regularly or once or twice. Um, I think the plan is basically that, to do the content we've been doing 
a regular basis as much as we, as much as possible. Keep growing out and building a, a platform for people from all over, from Twitter, from all over the sphere, to, to write and contribute, talk if they want. Um, and I don't really think that there's much else beyond that. From the show's standpoint, I think we want to continue building a general theme of the 20th century in particular is not what you were taught it was, not what you imagined it ever was. Um, trying to determine why exactly we're in the problems we're in today and how a lot of the historical development of phenomena, of objects, of people, of organizations uh, can it contribute to our day-to-day life and how we might fix things by understanding history. So those are the, I think, the long-term plans, if there are any. This is, a, this is a good one. And if you guys need time to think about what these are, we can come back to it. But the question is, what are the top five book recommendations from each host? Uh, <laughs> I, I hate top questions. Like, I'm, I'm not going to give you top. It's, it's a lot more difficult to construct in ordering over everything I've read than just pick five out of the top, you know, 50 or you don't have whatever to pick that five. has been very uh, pick a couple very influential. We, we can move on. We don't have to do five. But I, I, I read this beforehand, so I, I did, uh, did find five that I thought were worthy of discussing. But, uh, yeah, we don't need to make it a difficult question. And also, like, reading is a functional. I mean, it's partially entertainment, but it's also partially functional. Like, entertainment is a function to, you know, relax, to uh, expand your tastes or your horizons or, you know, just the, the pure aesthetic enjoyment. So, I mean, that that differs from, yeah, like, I, I constantly refer to machinery handbook or whatever. You know what I'll do? Um It'll take me some time to really think of this one. I should have thought of it before I got on the show, but I will make a promise to uh, post on Twitter or maybe on, even on the American Sun, maybe just write an article why I appreciate certain five books. Maybe not my top five, but there are five that I would highly recommend other people read for various reasons. So I'll make a promise to do that relatively soon. Um, because it'll take me a little while, and it's probably better done writing than trying to uh, articulate it over uh, over a quick soundbite. Sounds good. All right, I, I have five, so let me. Unless Hank, you got one. Well, I can do. Uh, we can we can alternate here. Um, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. Black Hole um, is a uh, a comic book um, that I think is just abjectly fantastic. Um, it's a, uh, sort of a bizarre, um, coming of age story with a kind of a interesting, um, art style, um, and very, um, freaky and kind of depressive messaging. Okay. Number one on my list is, and this goes back to an earlier question about where to go, but I personally have this book as a reference manual and it was instrumental in helping me decide where to go after I left Bug City. Uh, it's by the author Joel Scouse and the book is called Strategic Relocation. It's basically a map uh, book that has rankings uh, with you know, star ratings of all the different regions in the world uh, it, with a focus on the United States and then it uses the filter of risk, uh, opportunity, uh, schooling, legal, you know, rights, you know, gun laws, things like that. 
and basically just gives you a very detailed analysis of the different regions of the world if you wanted to move to different parts for reasons that we are all concerned about. Uh, concerns about the, the government, concerns about potential civil unrest, uh, concerns about wanting to have decent opportunities to have, own your own land in a secure place. And it also factors in very heavily because the author has a background in the military. He was a Marine Corps fighter pilot. He does have an aviation uh, skill set as well. So he used a lot of his knowledge from flying around the different parts of the United States uh, to view uh, where regions would be actually very secure in the event of a, a major crisis. And so having places that are hard to get to from major urban centers that might have big spillovers are a big part of the book. Uh, but you get a lot of detail, and it does have uh, very hardcore information about different regions. So I would recommend that book highly to anybody who's thinking of moving. Yeah, uh, I'll say, you know, I, I got into a Twitter spat, uh, which I am normally not want to do a while back. Um, but uh, I cannot really argue with the quality of uh, these books. Um, Causes of Separation and Powers of the Earth, they're a... Uh, a pair, I guess I forget which is the uh, the sequel to the other. But if you enjoy um, kind of hard science fiction, um, those are uh, two books by Traverus Cochran, um, who is basically our guy. Um, and they're extremely enjoyable if you uh, like uh, Heinlein or kind of things with that vibe. Okay, this one is no particular order. This was actually a book that was sent to me after he had, uh, the author had read my book, uh, Exit Strategy. And this author is actually from the Netherlands. I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning uh, the book itself, but I, I actually found it to be a very good read. And it's titled Revival of the West. It's basically a call to action, a spiritual call to action, if not more, from the men in particular of Western society to reclaim it. And it goes through historical problems of what has corrupted the West and what we need to do to bring it back. So I thought it was actually a very modern take on some of the ills that is affecting Europe in particular. I'll, uh, I'll follow up with, uh, if you can find the uh, version, and you can, it's on Amazon, of the Iliad by uh, the man who goes by the appellation Warnerd. Uh, I believe the title is The War Nerd Iliad. Um, I think it's the best... Uh, translation is maybe the wrong word. It's more of a retelling because he does not attempt to follow the poetic meter or whatever. But he is extremely good at uh, sort of retelling the story with an eye towards the uh, very ironic and very uh, cruel nature of uh, the story almost sort of the the greek version of uh, of world war one in terms of just describing the uh the the horrors of war and the cataclysm that resulted um, so definitely pick that up if you're at all interested in the sort of the greek classics i'll i'll give one um i might not giving a few but i've been sitting at looking at my bookshelf for the last couple of minutes um I, I really have to recommend uh, Iron Kingdom by Christopher Clark. It is a huge book. It's actually a really thick book, uh, and it is entirely about the, the history of Prussia. Um, Prussian history is pretty metal. It, it's it's really cool. Um, it, you have to admire Prussians, especially during reading the book. You really grow to admire 
this small state of people and um, what they managed to accomplish and how they permanently cemented their their name and place in history um, despite having you know almost no advantages uh, that would have allowed them to do so uh, in the initial stages. So I, I, w- I would highly recommend it. It's a great book on, um, on, on military tactics, on state formation, on um, cultural refinement, on cultural management, on you know, navigating your way through multiple eras um, and declines, and, and but also at the same time advances in technology and sophistication of, uh, of tool sets and sophistications of ways of life. You know, the Prussians managed to remain around for a very, very long time. In a, in a lot of ways, um, despite Prussia kind of coming to an, somewhat of an official end uh, after World War One, you know, most Prussians continued to, but the descendants of Prussians in that region had a large impact on the post-World War One Germany. Uh, much of the Third Reich took a lot of inspiration from um, Prussian uh, Prussian state mechanics, Prussian military um, tactics, Prussian military strategy, um, and a lot of the people who staffed huge chunks of the Third Reich, the low levels to the high levels were of Prussian descent. Um, so it's it's a it's a great ethnography. It's a great history of uh, of all of their contributions and how they actually managed to pull it off. If you're ever looking for how to build an ethnic state, that's, uh, that might be a, a good book to look at. Yeah, along those lines, we, we did a show uh, on this actually very early on when we were first starting out, uh, Inside the Third Reich by Albert Speer. It was about basically his journey through the uh, the Nazi government during the war, prior to the war, and during the war, and then after the war, uh, and his relationship in particular with Hitler, but also his responsibilities doing what he did uh, as an architect during that very incredible unique time in German history and also during the war as armaments minister and one of the things I I've always respected about Speer not to say that I endorse his explanations or his rationalizations about what he did why he did them and everything like that but as an intellect he is above many others and he is clearly a capable individual in a situation where he was pushed to the limits. And for a lot of people who look at that time period in that particular country during the war, and they, they try to philosophize about what it meant from a spiritual point of view, they're entitled to do that, and I have no issues with that. But I, what I would add is the importance of understanding the mechanics and understanding how to do what that regime tried to do and failed to do and why they failed to do it because the resource constraints that they ran up against were just insurmountable even if you had an intellect like this man running things and it's it's almost um, a miracle the the stuff that they were able to do at great expense no question about it but to to the degree at which they were being bombarded from the east and the west and the North from the British, uh, and then having the pincher come in from the Soviets and then the Americans, and they were still able to churn out the amount of production in terms of uh, guns, rifles, uh, uh, armaments, and tanks and airplanes. Despite all that, 
is to the credit of this man's genius and the system in which he orchestrated. So if you want to understand how to build a manufacturing system that is under duress and be resilient, I learned a lot from this this book, Inside the Third Reich. I'll, uh, I'll follow up with uh, El Norte or Bust, um, which is an interesting, very interesting book because it gives an insight into the kind of low-level mechanics of... Uh, illegal immigration to the U.S., why it happens from a policy perspective. And it's written by a pretty open leftist. He's not our guy at all, but he describes all of the same pathologies that we talk about, about how U.S. agricultural policy impoverished, impoverished these villages and simultaneously wanted cheap labor, how the remittances end up driving the further flows in a positive feedback loop. And it's something that is uh, more easy to refer people to to talk about these pathologies than Ann Coulter's also excellent book. Um, there's two more that I'll, I'll mention that I'll have to think about the others. But uh, one that I think everyone should read in uh, kind of tandem with some other stuff, there's a, there's a basically Heraclitus. I know there isn't much that has been documented, written by him, but uh, find it most places fragments or fragments. Um, it is just a collection of various parables and, and sort of um, sort of wise words written by Heraclitus. But what's always interesting is a lot of the work that surrounds it. Um, there's a great video and there's a lot of great work done by a man named. Um, Hans Jörg Damer. He doesn't speak English as far as I know. It's almost entirely in German uh, uh, or it's been translated. Uh, you can find videos with that he talks about. He, uh, he goes on and on about sort of the philosophical implications of Heraclitus, but um, it's it's deeply interesting to me. I think it's, it's probably going to be deeply interesting to a lot of people. The underpinnings of Heraclitus and a lot of his, his early work in sort of pre-Socratic philosophy has filled all the way down through most modern philosophy. Um, it obviously, a large inspiration for one of the more inf or more appreciated philosophers on the distance sphere, which would be Nietzsche. Uh, you know, huge chunks of Christian metaphysics can trace uh, pieces of their, uh, their esotericism back to Heraclitus. Um, and uh, uh, there's a good book just called The Pre-Socratic Philosophers. It's been out of print for a while. I think, but I, I have a copy I got from my grandfather uh, by Kirk and Ravenwood. Um, so there's there's a lot of great stuff around that, and I think it'll it'll really give you, you a, a real understanding of the history of, of not only philosophy but what these people were attempting to discern, which is always much more interesting to me than the philosophy itself. You know, how were these early attempts at understanding the world around you uh, conducted? Um, and there is a there's an element of, of poetry that it fits into, you know, early science that I think is really lost. Science now is very drab and uninteresting. A lot of the times it's not romantic and it's not, uh, you know, fueled by a lot of curiosity, I think, uh, the way it used to be. And another book that I would recommend, actually, this is a this is a recommendation from uh, from Ryan, Ryan Landry a while back. But it's, uh, it's John Kenneth Galbraith's book, New Industrial State. John Kenneth Albright got shit on a lot when he was a more popular person. Uh, he was basically the anti-Milton Freeman. 
uh, he kind of he did the he did chilling for Jimmy Carter and guys like that. He was sort of center left. Um, I guess you could if you had to align him with anything, but he did have a lot of interesting analyses. And as he got older, he did sort of let the mask slip a little bit. Um, and there are interviews with him, both written and recorded, but he's after kind of left all the political sphere um, that give you a good insight into how he thinks the economy actually works, how he uh, sort of encapsulates modern and postmodern American political economy, um, which I think is very interesting. And, and I think a lot of people in the dissident sphere would agree with what he has to say and would, would take a serious interest in, uh, especially that book, New Industrial State, because there is a bit of history to it that he does include that I didn't know. That there's there's real good historical analysis that he includes in his sort of um, prognosis of what the American economy was shaping up to be. I think that's correct. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, there's some stuff that we've already kind of dealt with, uh, but there was one. Uh, favorite conspiracy theory, uh, true or not? Oh, man. Uh, I'll go first. I mean, it's just a collection of theories, but, but everything on Antarctica, I mean, I will stay awake at night until 3 a.m. just reading even the most insane shit about Antarctica because I think it's just way too fascinating. It's way too spooky. The, the biggest part of Antarctica is it's it's literally a big landmass, and it's illegal to go there unless you're pre-approved by, by you know some governmental organization. You cannot go there for some reason, um, and there's all kinds of reasons. Probably there's probably very realistic reasons why that exists. Uh, one of the ones we've speculated about before is that there is more than likely all kinds of isolated biospheres that we probably don't quite understand, particularly underneath the ice. We know that there's extensive cave networks both inside the land and underneath the ice um, that could contain all kinds of pathogens that have not been, you know, that have were basically taken out of the ecosystem millions and millions of years ago. There could be all kinds of bacterial life forms that we probably want nothing to do with. Uh, there could be all kinds of hints of uh, you know, gaps in evolution we might not have been able to explain that could be kind of freaky to the average person. Uh, who knows? But I think that a lot of the stuff, there's always the stuff with the Third Reich that I think catches people's attention in Antarctica. And there's mysterious deaths and other stuff that surround that whole business. Um, but I honestly, it, to me, it's always, I've always been more interested in, uh, there's probably some form of life, either rudimentary or complex, down there that uh, they're, they're trying to isolate the rest of the world for probably a, a good reason. And that's probably what drives a lot of the increasing scientific investment research facilities down there. I got one for you. So the Pentagon being five-sided uh, is not a coincidence. Uh, the number five has deep numerological significance because of its reoccurring nature, particularly as the sum of two and three. There's the whole story about, oh, we wanted to stick it exactly between these five highways, which is ridiculous. If you know anything about civil engineering, you don't stick objects 
like literally adjacent to highways to the point where you need to make it a particular shape to fill, where would you put the exit ramps? Where would you put the parking lot? So that's bullshit. The reason that you build a five-sided gigantic quote-unquote office complex is because the Pentagon is slash was a containment mechanism for God only knows what, but whatever it is, evidently it got out on September 11th, 2001, when they breached the seal, let this thing out. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, but things have gotten pretty surreal and not at all better since, uh, since September 10th. <laughs> I love that. Um, I, where did you, where did you first hear this? That is know. way too good. What do you mean? But did you just come up with that? No, I mean that's just what happened. <laughs> Damn, dude. Right. No, um, uh, I don't. I don't remember how many books I uh, described. I mean, it does. Uh, so, the Pentagon being a containment device is a, a thesis that dates back, as far as I know, to uh, Robert Anton Wilson, um, who, uh, with his co-author, whose name I forget. Uh, co-wrote uh, the Illuminatus uh, trilogy. Um, however, there's also, if you look at what the Pentagon happens to lie on the same uh, rough uh, latitude, latitude. Yeah. it's also clear that it forms one end of a lensing system. Uh, but that gets into some... some well, really I've, deep I've heard it's on the same latitude as the Cupertino Apple headquarters as well as the Vatican. I'm not sure if Well, you mean the gigantic that. circle that happens to be on the other end of the North American continent? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting coincidence. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, mine, I mean, you think you kind of stole the thunder a little bit. And I've said this many times, but it's true. I, I do... I do believe the uh, many of the conspiracy theories about 9-11. I don't think it was a, a hologram or some kind of really high-tech projection, but I do believe that um, what we were told was, was not correct. And I would encourage anyone to go into, if they don't believe that, just look at some basic facts about lack of evidence, evidence placed in the wrong place, uh, I can I can I can just go on for for half an hour on this stuff, but I won't. But the the physics don't add up. Uh, there seems to be violations of Newton's laws. Uh, when the airplane hit the buildings in New York, uh, there was no wreckage outside the Pentagon. And the fourth plane, which allegedly Flight 93, which was taken down by heroic Americans, which allegedly crashed in uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, there was zero. I mean, zero, like wreckage at that crash site. There was basically, it looked like somebody took a, a, a Bic lighter and lit some of the grass on fire. And then they, they, their explanation for why there was no wreckage on the ground. When a plane hits, there is, there is debris everywhere. Uh, their explanation for why there was no wreckage was that the plane had crashed, coincidentally, one out of a million odds, right into the shaft of an abandoned mine. And it fallen oh. right into it. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> the old tripped and fell in a mine shaft. <laughs> Remember, like they identified one of the pilots because his passport fell on a New York street out of the plane. That was, that was one of the hijackers, I thought. Yeah, so yeah. He was on top of the rubble. 
that was the, the pilots. I mean, one of the hijackers who was flying the plane <laughs> or whatever, like that's how they determined he was there out of every, out of the giant fireball that would have cooked every single piece of paper, even in near proximity. Oh, and you know what, Hans? That fire continued to burn for two weeks. Oh, yeah. It went all the way down to limestone. You ever seen those pictures where the the limestone beneath the World Trade Center was exposed? How hot that fucking fire got? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the firefighters were saying they saw molten steel pouring out of the side of the building. All right, jet fuel can soften steel, but it's not gonna. It's not a blast furnace. I mean, there was something going on in there, and there are many theories as to what. But if you believe, well, one of my favorite story, theories is that there's it, physics, it, you know, in, incorrect. Well, right? go ahead. That, what is it that basically? Uh, this go. It went back to the whole Operation Northwoods thing. Remember that kept getting referenced by the 9-11 truth crowd like they're like oh well there was this plan to basically do just this way back in the 60s and it was approved by curtis lemay that whole crowd uh fighting with kennedy basically to you know buy get a bunch of remote controlled planes with dead people in them cadavers fly them into um, you know important american buildings or landmarks and start a war with cuba Like that, that got brought up repeatedly by like the 9/11 crowd back in the day, uh, and you know, no one really had a response to that because it was too eerie. Oh shit! <laughs> wow. Not only is this more than likely an op, it's an old op. They literally recycled a 50-year-old op, or a 40 at that point, a 40-year-old op. Well, I mean, they, there may have been something like that, but the trade centers were built in the 70s, so I don't think it was. Well, I know. They were, I don't think that they were going to run them into the trade center back in the 60s, right. but the, that was the general plan, was to basically you know, stage this false flag right. uh, airplane hijacking by Cubans instead of uh, Arabs. Right. Yeah, there was an episode of the, I think it was the Lone Gunman. Yep, yep. Which basically described exactly what happened on 9-11 yep. with the planes crashing into the trade centers. Uh, and... Uh, you know, that that's another that's another show that's sort of inspirational there's, for this there's one. A, there's there's several, and I don't know what level of autism you have to be on to comb through pop culture to find this stuff. But kudos to whoever does have that, um, because you're putting it to good use. There are several video compilations of people finding incidences of the World Trade, specifically the two towers, shown on fire or blowing up in like two to two or three years leading up to that event in cartoons and movies mm-hmm. and TV shows and songs, uh, like multiple videos. Well, you got to remember they tried to blow it up in 93 and know, the, the but... claimed, the claimed amount of explosives that the forensic analyst, whoever was sent in there to sort of analyze that thing was so low for people who were actually in the explosives and demolitions business that they, they kept upping the number because probably they were receiving a lot of criticism. And they, they, there was first, it was like, Oh, well, yeah, there's 5,000 pounds of explosive. Oh no, no, it's 10,000. No, 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 it was 20,000. Oh yeah. It was a rider truck. The people who are in this business, they say there was no way the amount of damage that they saw in there couldn't have done without like a nuclear warhead or a tactical nuke. I mean, it was basically just, it was so surreal how much damage they had done and it still held up the building. And so if you believe that that was actually the first attempt at bringing that thing down, you really got to believe that they, they put a lot more explosives into that building the second time around. Because the planes, 
Okay, they're made of aluminum, and you've got a, a massive steel column that is got to be a thousand times more in mass. Those planes are not going to knock those things over. Those planes are going to bounce off like a rubber ball. That's basically what the physics would say. And no, they cut right through the steel beams. That wouldn't happen. That, that's violating Newton's third law. So I, I don't want to get into too much of this because I know this isn't the point of the show, but there, there is just so much evidence that is wrong about what they told us. So I do have to say that. that was one of the last psyops that was at least somewhat believable at first. I mean, the ones they have now are terrible. I mean, immediately yeah. like that, yeah, and that one in Vegas, it's like, holy shit. They just gave up on that when they realized they'd screwed up so badly. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And he's got a, uh, uh, bump stocks. Fuck it. I don't know. Like, yeah, those are well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's gotten terrible. I think that your containment theory is right, Hank. Like, I don't, <laughs> everything has declined, including the government psyops. They're just terrible now. I know they can't even lie to us anymore. <laughs> I knew that one would be a that would be a good question. Yeah, they're, uh, not, they're not even I got, evil I got, geniuses. They're just evil. I got uh, a couple more uh, good ones in here. Uh, the last American, a, a longtime friend of the show, asks, uh, "What was the greatest crime of the 20th century, and why was it the killing of Emmett Till?" Is that the black guy? <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, Adam, you haven't you haven't uh, heard of the uh, the sainted uh, Emmett Till? <laughs> I don't know. Is he related to Trayvon? I mean, they they seem to pop uh, up every three three only years spiritually. or so. Okay. Uh, was he, wasn't he the Negro that got lynched for like roping a white chick way back? Yeah, I mean, the the story, the the traditional story that uh, it's it's hilarious if you look at the uh, the uh, engrams or the uh, the New York Times frequency count, whatever the the main uh, like news frequency mentioning metric of your choices. If you look at Emmett Till, it's like. There's like a like a microscopic tick in 1955 when he was off, and then it's kind of dormant for a while, and then it ramps up a little bit in the mid 80s, and then it goes hyperbolic around 2016, and now it's like every couple of weeks the New York Times is uh, publishing late breaking news on the story of Saint Emmett Till. It's like he okay, so the story is. He quote unquote whistled at a white woman, and uh, some of her relatives or something took offense and uh, killed him, which happens approximately hourly in Chicago. So I'm not sure why everybody's particularly angry about this instance, uh, you know, 65 years ago now when there's uh, eminent other examples to choose from. Uh, the story that's slightly more woke is that the uh, the woman claimed to some friends or something that it wasn't quote unquote whistling that he actually like groped her like essentially a sexual assault and i believe all women so i i choose to believe that that's uh that's the case but even uh, ignoring that it's obviously just one of these tropes that they decide to spin up and gin up a narrative out of nothing but i would i would surprisingly uh i would not say that it is the greatest uh crime of the uh, the 20th century i think that uh that requires a little bit of contemplation on my part but uh maybe while i filibustered uh has, does anyone else have a candidate greatest crime um 
the the mafia guys for not publicly releasing right. Hoover's tranny photos. That's a that's a crime. I would have paid money to see those. I mean, the greatest crime was the Second World War. <laughs> Night alone was an inside job, man. Hey, I have a question here. This is actually, it was not posted on one of our uh, Twitter threads. This is from a private source. If you could all have a hobby that isn't the show, what would it be and why? Uh, well, we do have hobbies. Yeah, this is not the only thing we do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how this person got the impression we don't have, I guess, I don't know. We, we don't have hobbies. It's easy to ascribe FTN levels of uh, of dedication to the endeavor that we all pursue when the uh, the only view that you have uh, into our various personalities comes through this uh, this weekly uh, show. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we got stuff going on. I like cooking. Uh, I like hiking. Long walks on the beach. You know, stuff like that. I have some hobbies. I think yeah. Adam does too. Yeah, I, I mean, I've talked about them, but it's... You know, I, I like I like working on machines. I like to uh, to build things. Um, you know, it's uh, I like the outdoors. I mean, it's, it sounded kind of boring, but you know that that's that's kind of me. You know, I like basically being uh, getting my hands dirty. I'm currently building a literal wall. It's harder than you would expect. At least somebody is. <laughs> hey, I got another one here. Chili's slash Applebee's versus Chick-fil-A. Oh, Chili's. Chili's Chili's is great. Applebee's isn't even in the running there. No, wow. Chili's you gotta you gotta work the uh the the combo thing. It's like they're they're like smokehouse trio or whatever. You gotta get the corn, you gotta get some meat stuff. It's pretty good. It's tasty. It's not that terribly bad for you either. If you like, you know, you stick to the meats, you realize, you know, don't look at the calorie counts because they just, they fake those by just slathering things in butter, but butter's never killed anyone. It's fine. Oh yeah. I have butter all the time every day and I'm fine. I'm a normal guy. Just, you know, the mistake when you go to these places, you have to realize, like if you go to McDonald's, their beef is fine. Like, they're meticulous about sourcing their beef. There's only three ingredients in their patties. It's uh, hamburger, salt, and pepper, I believe, or water, possibly. But it's it's just like straight cow. The thing that's bad for you is their buns are basically pastries. And once you realize that all mass uh, mass market restaurants are set up to be, like, drug delivery systems where their drug of choice is you know simple complex carbohydrates like you realize if you go to applebee's and you like you know you thumb through the menu and you figure out what you want to eat and then you thumb through their drink menu the drug that they're delivering in their drink menu it's not alcohol it's these disgusting syrupy like you know mint blue pomegranate mojito thing like just stay away from the sugar stay away from the carbs but enjoy your chain restaurants they're okay they're okay you know they're okay 
Yeah, Warren Buffett eats what is it, Burger King, like every day, and he's fine, right? Oh, that, that's a meme. Warren that's Buffett has a huge PR game. <laughs> so he doesn't drink eight cherry cokes a day. Yeah, he just drinks Coke he, and he eats uh, Dairy Queen. Yeah, it's like yeah, I, I wear Fruit of the Loom. I ride my uh, Burlington Northern uh, train to to work each morning. <laughs> I still, uh, on paper, own this uh, $80,000 house, so you could say I'm a a traditionalist. I can almost see it from my mansion in Malibu via the satellite. (laughs) Right, my car is insured by Geico. I wear Justin boots when I hop into the car, and and it's like he's he's just a shill for all of his stuff. It's it's. I mean, you you respect you respect the PR game. It's it's a he has it's fun an with it. I'll give him credit for that. I mean, it's kind of like a joke, but it's it's like this has got to be the most boring person in the world to be in a That's relationship the with. No, the dude is a shark. If you look at how he, oh, he acquired, is. absolutely is no question I mean, about it. Now that because of the amount of capital that he has, uh, he can only go after these huge, just enormous tens of billions right, of dollars with deals with yeah. their sharks. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, you know, whatever. These guys get what's coming to them. But if you look at what he did in the 80s with, um, for instance, buying out uh, family-owned newspapers because of uh, certain laws about, uh, like, monopoly uh, newspapers getting particular um, subsidies in small markets and uh, in combination with, like, pre-Reagan tax reform inheritance taxes, it was like he... He was working every angle, and you know his goal was not to overpay for things. And if he can get in a situation where he's got your balls in a vice, he's more than happy to apply some pressure, which is fine. I mean, that's like that's you know efficient allocation of capital or whatever. But that, that's what he represents and what he is. Womb. No, I and to, to be serious about him, I mean. He is he's a, a true talent at what he does, and I, I do have a lot of respect for his ability in business and finance. But what what that represents to me, as I've sort of grown out of the the Gordon Gecko upbringing that I sort of had for a few years, was, and even Gordon Gecko had some flash and flair and, and intrigue to the guy. I mean, he was kind of an interesting dude. You'd you'd hang out with him. Warren Buffett is what happens when you let your economy turn into a giant strip mall or shopping center. And that's what we've become. We've become Amazon and Walmart and McDonald's. I mean, you know, that, that meme of like the, uh, I think it's somewhere in Tennessee, I believe, or somewhere in the South that is basically just a, an intersection full of Texaco and Arby's and McDonald's and Chevron signs. I mean, people coming into the United States. I will defend Breezewood to the death. So, so if you want to live in that world, you're living in a world that is geared to consumption and standardization. Nobody and lives in Breezewood. And, like, uh, it's a highway interchange. There's a bunch of shit there because people drive all right, through. Hank, all right, have you yeah, heard shit on my point? Well, let's just move on to the next one. This is, this is no fun here. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, was any, trying, any I was trying to make a critique of American capitalism, and, and you're not letting me. So what's the next question? No, greed is good, motherfucker. We're not interested in your your gay left wing critiques. But Welcome the next to Costco, one, I love you. <laughs> the next one is from at Noth Noth, yeah, N O T H. Any 
lost episodes due to recording malfunction, dissatisfaction with the result, the game getting too heated, wrong slash bad <laughs> partial self doxing. We've had some heated gamer moments on the show. Um, I mean, there was one moment in particular on the Kaczynski episode where I thought Nick or Adam was going to like drive over to Nick's house and beat the shit out of him. Oh, but other than that, I don't think we've ever gotten like too heated. God, what was that about? You, I don't know what you guys were. I just remember just my feelings around it. I was very traumatized, and I was like, "Oh God!" Oh, they're screaming at each other now. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not your fault. Your parents are getting divorced. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> never had a lost episode due uh, to like a malfunction. I don't think. Yeah, there, there, are, there are a few missing episodes that I can't get into, but yes, it's basically for privacy reasons. Yeah. Ah. I'll, just, I'll just put it, leave it at that. Gotcha. Um, have we ever been dissatisfied with the result of an episode? I don't think so. Some of us. I, don't yeah. think some of us. I mean, I've had feelings after the fact, and some of them, they're like, well, you know, that could have gone better. It's like, you know, the whole uh, the French, like uh, the spirit of the escalator. I don't know this. Uh, it's like, boy, I, I should have, I should have mentioned X or Y. Whatever. I. Yeah. This is why I never listen to the show after the fact. <laughs> I think almost never. Yeah, that's probably healthy. Yeah. 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 I don't really like the sound of my own voice. I'm not. I don't really uh, like hearing myself talk. Sometimes I will listen to it if people have something to say that I think is should go back and check. But uh, I don't really listen much of it. Um, another one personal favorite episode series or topics uh, this is from Clark Fletcher did we already do this? no, uh, no. Um, let's see personal favorite episode uh, Nick's episode way back probably really even during the show not long before that maybe two or three months before that uh, on the CIA which was I think one of the episodes that kind of put us on the map too with a lot of people yeah, that was good. Uh, mm-hmm. it, that was probably that's still probably my favorite episode. Um, that was one of the first times I, I really thought, "Wow, these guys actually have something original to say." Because I never, no one had ever really ever framed the CIA in that way um, before. You know, kind of Nick and Alex and you two talked about it. I really liked the uh, the one that we did on the Holodomor. Yeah. Yeah, did a lot of research on that one, and I think it turned out well. That one was easy, I think, because it was—it's so damning to this. Like, there's so much damning stuff on the Soviets, and it's so easy to just lay it on Mm -hmm. and you know present fact by fact that this was a this was like a huge operation that was so overly deliberate. I mean, we're talking about psyops getting way too obvious. The ironic thing is that you know, we're just descending to like Soviet level psyops. We're very obvious. Like everyone knew, oh, this they're fucking with us. Like oh, they're they're trying to punish us for something. The whole country was on the up and up about it. Um, they just couldn't say anything. Yeah, Nick. Nick told me that he liked the episode on Henry Ford that I did a lot of work on, and I, I'll, I'll go with his instinct on that. It was a topic that was uh, very important to me, it still is, about a man that was, in many ways, a, a man out of time, in many ways, because he kind of, his contemporaries back in the in the real 
hard charging industrial era of the United States was that you would be kind of a a very harsh person to your workers, someone who would cheat and steal and do whatever it took to get where he needed to get to acquire power, much like Rockefeller was accused of and probably was legitimately accused of, of being and doing during his, his reign of power. Uh, and people like uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, Frick, even Carnegie was probably uh, arguably like this. Uh, um, I was answering my own, my own question, but uh, Henry Ford admired people like Thomas Edison who were, in his eyes, the, the, the true Promethean innovators and people who would harness the creativity to, to ends uh, that benefited humanity. And so what Henry Ford was trying to do in his operation was improve people's lives, bring convenience to them, bring, bring them power and extensions of themselves, not to replace them necessarily, but to empower them. And it sounds corny perhaps, but what, if you look at what he did in terms of transforming the transportation business, and not only that, but also transforming the relationship between the great industrialists and their workers in having things like the, uh, the $5 a day pay plan that was actually double the rate at the time uh, for the average worker in that type of uh, line of work. He was truly uh, a pioneer and imperialist in many ways. He was a man above all others. And his legacy is, is one of a great automotive company that innovated in manufacturing technologies. It still exists today. And his company was the only company of the American major automotive manufacturers not to take a government bailout. And it, it stands to this day a family business and it is a respected business. And it, it is one that employs hundreds of thousands of people. And so if you compare that to the oligarchs of today where they employ 10,000 people and basically waste the the users' lives uh, by making them into these narcissistic or voyeuristic personalities on social media. Uh, I think there's no contest in terms of who has contributed more to humanity. And so that was my sort of uh, wheelhouse, and perhaps I guess that, that would be, I guess be my vote for what the uh, the my favorite episode was. There's a lot of questions. Um of the course and we're getting up on two hours. So this might be a good one to uh, conclude on. Um, Todd Ianuzzi uh, asks, do you guys think gulags are coming? Um, somebody else who I can't scroll to right now asks, what's the best we can realistically hope for? Um, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of things that are basically predict the future, please. Um, Hank and I actually talked about this gulag thing the other night, and uh, I don't, I don't, neither of us really see gulags happening. Uh, Hank, you had a good take on what, yeah, actually. So, uh, if you're throwing people into a gulag, like the gulags had a point, the point was we need a lot of raw labor, um, for random industrial development because we have all these forests that need to be chopped down, we have this canal that needs to be dug we have this uranium that needs to be mined uh that is not a situation that the united states finds itself in gulags are a really inefficient way of dealing with political dissidents uh and they're if anything the symptom of a 
uh, relatively coarse-grained and inefficient uh, police state. The United States have has a very fine-grained and efficient police state. So the gulag is not the correct model. If you look at the uh, the treatment of late Soviet dissidents, that's a better model where their employment was screwed with as a matter of state policy. Their relationships were screwed with as a matter of state policy. Uh, if you were particularly vocal um, or uh, not even vocal per se, but if you were particularly aggressive about taking action, of course, you could still be thrown in jail because that was explicitly a crime. But most of the uh, baggage associated with that status of political dissident was exerted through um, kind of the the baseline uh, machinery of a bureaucratic state when your life depends on uh, consent from the bureaucratic states to accomplish much of anything. So... I think that that is a more uh, plausible negative outlook. Um, however, the central state is becoming less and less able to uh, exert that kind of authority on a macro scale. Like, sure, they could do that to a thousand people. Like, there's enough FBI, ATF, whatever agents to just, you know, you send one per guy and you just do that um, if you really want to crush those thousand people. But when you start getting into uh, levels of repression uh, advocated by some uh, presidential candidates that we're going to send people door to door to grab uh, all of these things that we've just banned, or, uh, you know, Eric Swallow, I guess, is no longer in the running, but uh, yeah, we'll just nuke Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, that'll be great for my presidential run. You're getting into um, uh, levels of the fantasy of the omnipotent state that beggar belief. Um, so I am not hopeful um, for the short term. I think things will actually get pretty bad um, within the next uh, couple of years. Um, I think the election is going to be a particularly tenuous time in American history, regardless of the way that it hashes out. Um I think that in the medium term, uh, there is significantly more hope because the United States is a much larger country um, and because so many of the pathologies that afflict our current system are obviously the result of state power and that state power is actually diminishing. I agree. I agree. I think the United States is... It has never really, apart perhaps from the Civil War, when people were being put into concentration camps like Antietam, uh, it's never really done the type of political imprisonment that we've seen in the Soviet Union. Uh, what it's done, however, is a much more subtle version of political restraint and oppression. Uh, the United States has the world's largest prison population. Now, compared to the, the Russian prison system, it is much, much milder. No question in my mind. And if you ask a Russian citizen who has been to those prison systems and maybe uh, immigrated to the United States and then been in the prison system here, he'll tell you that. Um, but the way it's done for most people is, as Hank is saying, it's done in a very 
indirect but very substantial way in terms of social ostracism, eliminating people's ties to the community, their ability to earn a living, which effectively makes them low status. It's so it's basically an attack on your 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 rank in the hierarchy, such that you have a very large incentive to not get into trouble so that you don't lose your status. And so basically you you follow what the narrative is. And a lot of this is being carried out through the proxy warriors of the state or the establishment, which is manifested in the social media companies, which have a very globalist uh, ideology behind them. It manifests itself on the streets in Antifa, which affects a very small number of people, let's be honest. But if you are thinking of going uh, onto the streets, they're there uh, without almost exception to push you back into your bedrooms where the establishment wants you. And then if you ever decide to not play World of Warcraft and maybe talk about some politics online, well, they're going to basically try to push you off the platform. And they don't really need to put you in a gulag because as Hank says, the the value of that is actually not even there uh, these days. I mean, so much of the the work that was performed by the slave labor forces in the gulags is somewhat automated today by heavy machinery. So there's not really a need for huge uh, labor gangs anymore. You don't really see see prisoners doing that, even at, you know on chain gangs uh, picking up uh, litter. I don't even know if they do that anymore. Uh, they don't repair highways. They basically are just are, are walled off away from society, and they either do that explicitly in the prison system, or they do it with uh, with indirect means by virtually walling you off from any access to the the good aspects of our society, in the hope that it will discourage people from uh, dissenting. So that I think that's the American model. That's that's how it works uh, internationally uh, in many ways as well with the propaganda, uh, economic sanctioning. Yes, there is uh, there's a lot of bombs being dropped uh, on very poor parts of the world, but we don't see the type of troop deployments that uh, you know the Second World War called for. We don't really even see what we saw in Vietnam. I mean, in Iraq, the number of casualties which was much smaller than in Vietnam. And so it's, it's basically a very indirect and very sophisticated mechanism of control that uses the powers and arms of Hollywood and big business to get what it wants. And I don't think it needs to resort to very blunt and very obvious forces, uh, shows of force, because I think that gives the, the game away to a lot of people who don't study this. And I think people are basically asleep because of that. And I, I think that's how they want it. They don't want to make it obvious that they're very powerful. They want to make it very subtle. And I think that benefits them. So I think we'll, we'll see more of that. Thank you.